Hi everyone, welcome again to Inside Infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer from Infrastructure Partnerships Australia and I'm joined as always by my co-host Ilya Zak from our series sponsor PwC Australia's Infrastructure and Urban Renewal Team. How are you doing Ilya? I'm pretty well Adrian, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm right. Uh, it's great to be here today with another election wrapped up last week. It's proving to be a pretty exciting time to be in the infrastructure sector. Um, infrastructure has formed the the main talking point for the election for both both parties, and it was an exciting debate. I'm probably a nerd. It's always an exciting time in infrastructure for me, but it has been particularly exciting with the elections we've had and are having. So there's a federal election most likely around the 11th or the 18th of May. So we've just had the New South Wales election. We'll have the federal election soon. It is coming up soon. And in that uh, in that context for today, we've just had a, a fascinating discussion with our special guest on the show, the Honourable Anthony Albanese, former Deputy Leader and Infrastructure Minister during the last Labor government, and currently the Shadow Minister for Transport and Infrastructure. That's right. And I'm I, from my perspective, I really enjoyed the discussion. I suspect you did as well, Ilya. He's, he's obviously passionate about the infrastructure space. He's been in the portfolio for 12 years as a minister in a shadow. And a really frank discussion about what goes on in Canberra, what the opportunities and challenges are. Absolutely. It was fascinating. And so without further ado, here he is, Anthony Albanese. All right, Anthony Albanese, thank you for joining us here on Inside Infrastructure. Um, good to be here. Oh, good to have you. Um affectionately known as Albo. Um, sometimes people mispronounce it as Albanese. Albanese, you've been a former Deputy Prime Minister, former Minister, so you're also the Honourable. Uh, how, how should we address you? Anthony's fine. Anthony. <laughs> Not Albo? Albo's Albo. fine too. Right. And what's your I, DJ um, name? Uh, DJ Albo, obviously. DJ Albo. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I, um, I was on uh, the sideline of my son's football game uh, a, a couple of years ago and they were all chanting out, you know, Albo. And I, <laughs> I realised then that my now 18-year-old son, once he hit 16, is now known as Albo as well. So oh, no. it's a name that sticks. So you, as a kid, people called you Albo? From as a kid, you? absolutely everyone called me Albo from yeah. primary school all the way through and it's just a stuck. And it didn't stick in, in politics Um uh, my friends called me Albo, but people in Canberra didn't. Actually, one of the people who started it, I think, was Malcolm Turnbull, used to call me that. <laughs> um, and uh, then uh, Kevin Rudd, when uh, the leadership changed in 2013 and uh, I became Deputy Prime Minister, he introduced me to the world as Deputy Prime Minister Albo <laughs> at the press conference uh, late on the Wednesday night. And that just minutes stuck from that point on that's it so since since 20 that was it so your elbow absolutely i always have been but now it's uh it's very broad and people who i've never met um it, it used to make me feel a little bit uncomfortable but people i've never met will go hi elbow um and uh i guess it's quite nice it's a sign of affection i like to think can you get elbow put on the ballot paper? If you've got it. <laughs> Unfortunately not, but we do have, um, we have had T-shirts from time to time that just have on it elbow rather than the full name. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it it is what it is. It uh, it, it works. Um, and and I, I do take it as a sign of approachability, which hopefully I am. I think I'm a pretty friendly person. And uh, if people feel comfortable... Uh, with uh, calling me Albo, I think that means they're comfortable with having a chat. 
Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about um, what Albo is short for? Albanese is the correct pronunciation, right. of course. Um, you always say the vowels at the end of Italian words, right. but uh, I've said before I'm not terribly precious about how people pronounce my name. No one says Bolognese when they <laughs> order true. spaghetti Bolognese, but they should, of course, and, and it's a bit more of a silent S really when you do the proper Italian. Yeah. Albanese. Your father was Italian, is that right? My father was Italian, and uh, so... Hence, uh, hence I got his name. Okay, and, and do you, you don't speak it yourself? No, no. My um, people, people need to buy the book uh, by Karen Middleton, uh, Albanese, uh, telling it straight. That tells the story about uh, uh, my uh, my origins, which is uh, my my father's contribution was uh, was pretty minimal uh, okay. to my early life. My mum uh, travelled uh, overseas as a very brave young woman in the early 60s. Uh, my mum's uh, name was Ellery, uh, Marianne Ellery, and she traveled overseas. Her brother was working on, uh, on the Fair Sky, uh, a cruise ship. Uh, he was an entertainer and she went overseas uh, with him. She met my father. Uh, they had a relationship uh, both uh, on the ship and uh, in uh, when it, it came back, she was living in London, so she went down and visited him in uh, Southampton, and uh, we suspect that's where where I was conceived. Um, and uh, so, you don't have any secret European citizenship? Do you? She, um, well, no. In terms of my, my birth certificate, has a blank uh, oh, right. next to uh, next to next to my father because my mum. Um, told him that uh, she was she'd fallen pregnant uh, he was engaged to someone from uh, his uh, local town in in Puglia in Italy Balletta and she she came back and of course it was a difficult decision to have a child out of wedlock in 1963 so uh, I was told as was uh, the uh, the neighbors and the community around Camperdown she was very Catholic and uh, that, that he died. And the original plan was that uh, he was, uh, he had died and then she had lost me in childbirth for me to be adopted out, which was very common in those days. Uh, you know, women would go for a holiday in the country for six months and come back. Right. Um, and uh, my mother uh, was handed, uh, uh, her, her young son um, after I was born at uh, at St Margaret's Hospital there in Darlinghurst the nuns knew that she didn't want to give me up and uh, so she she kept me and uh, it was a very brave thing to do but I, I grew up being told that my, my father had died um, and uh, I she told me when I was a, a teenager and I just dealt with that I'd had uh, grown up in a two-person household, so I didn't, I didn't feel a need to, to search for him at the time. Um, you know, she had raised me and been everything for me, um, and I think out of respect for her as well, she needed to hear that she was enough, uh, which she was. Um, and uh, so later on in life, though, uh, she died in two thousand and two. Uh, my son came along in 2000 and there was a particular t 
time we were at uh, at my mum's grave out at, at, at Rookwood, and uh, he asked me um, where where my father was, and the truth is I didn't know. Right. And uh, that uh, I then embarked on a uh, on a, a search for him, and uh, I found him with the the assistance of, of some others uh, in uh, December two thousand and nine. So we met then. Uh, it took uh, it took quite a while, and it was really very lucky. We found his em- employment records in in a box on a, on a wharf in Genoa, and uh, that had an address. We, I had his birth date. Uh, I thought he was from Naples, which is the other side of Italy from where he was he That's was from, right. but that was a port city, um, and uh, so we found. An address and made contact and and uh, I met him and my half brother and half sister um, and we had to convince them firstly that you know I wasn't after anything I wasn't right. there for the inheritance or anything else as he's, mm. he's firstborn uh, my father passed away in January 2014 and uh, up until that point uh, people weren't aware of uh, my story mm. right. um, uh, but Karen Middleton, the journalist, uh, was uh, knew about it and was determined to uh, to write uh, a story. Originally, she wanted to do a, a, a TV thing. Uh, she was working for SBS, but uh, decided to put it in in long form. And once my father had passed away, uh, you know, I, I didn't tell anyone while my mother was alive, out of respect for her. I for mean, sure. it's a it, it's it's a tough thing. It says something about the pressure that was placed on on young women in that region. That you know, she adopted his name. Mm. Uh, she had this story. She wore a wedding and engagement ring as a widow. Um, you know, all of which was because somehow uh, judgment was made uh, of even the term illegitimate. I mean, think about what mm. that means. You know, you're not as good as someone who's legitimate yeah and I mean really uh, I think it was a very courageous decision that 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 she took and it's quite a selfless one as well because that, oh, that absolutely. was for you, as, you know, as she gave up an son. enormous amount that age at which your mum told you about the <coughs> your father and like you said teenage years yeah I was about 15 or 16 so is that a similar time to when you were getting interested in politics and yeah, I I joined um, the Labor Party at at that age. Um, I grew up in a household. I say I was raised by my mother with three faiths: um, the Catholic Church, uh, South Sydney Rugby League Football Club, <laughs> and uh, and the Australian Labor Party. And that, you, your mum was my mum was a member. My grandfather was a a, a member. Um, the family were all labour. I grew up in, um, it was council housing, city council housing. My, my grandfather was a printer and did printing for Pat Hills, who was a former leader of the Labor Party here in New South Wales. Um, the family was, uh, uh, was just labour. Um, it was, uh, the community around the city council was, it was all industrial with this one block of housing that was all public housing. Um, whereby everyone supported rugby league, everyone was Catholic, and everyone voted Labor. 
Uh, so, so you didn't have a chance. That's really, just kind of. That's just what you did. Uh, that was part of the culture. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a close knit community, not without some internal issues, as happens. But um, it was very much a close knit community. Um, you know, we never had a car or anything, so my, my life existed between Camperdown and and the city. You were a good kid at school, or you? I was. Uh, I was uh, not the most studious kid. Uh, I, I did okay at school, but I was a bit of a knockabout kid too. I had my mum uh, had rheumatoid arthritis and was uh, very crippled up with that, and then with consequent uh, health issues that came from being on various medication, etc. So there, there wasn't an organ. Uh, that she didn't have issues with. Um, so she spent a lot of time in uh, in hospital. So, you know, from the age of 12, I was uh, living by myself uh, for considerable periods of time, you know, getting meals from the neighbours, cooked dinner, but looking after, you know, going to the hospital, picking up my mum's washing, doing that, paying the rent, uh, looking after the household. It sounds like that that experience um, has shaped your uh, membership of the Labor Party more than, or at least as much as um, it just being the the inherited membership as well. Oh, absolutely! It, it was um, one of the first, well, the first campaign I was involved with was the uh, uh, civic reform, which was basically the Conservatives got control of the uh, the City Council. And wanted to sell all the the housing up, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so my first campaign, like I was very young, early teens, twelve, thirteen, was going around knocking on doors, getting petitions. We had a rent strike um, that lasted for over a year. Um, you know, my my first public uh, speeches would have been as a thirteen year old kid or at uh, at, at mass meetings opposed to privatisation of, of public housing. It, it strikes me that all of those issues that politicised you, they're all state issues, not mm. federal issues, or at least they're state issues now. And and yet, you know, you've been Deputy Prime Minister, Federal Minister, you've spent your, your at least the, the last couple of decades dealing with federal issues. What, is that an active decision or? I, I think the way you change the country is in the national parliament. Mm. And uh, increasingly, uh, increasingly, what what we've seen just with uh, the way that the world's changed is that that trend will continue. Mm. Uh, the national government will have uh, more influence. Can I just can I, can I dig in on that a little? So you, it sounds like that's quite a passionate interest for Absolutely. you. Absolutely, um, housing and, and as Adrian mentioned, those are at the moment those are largely state issues. But you have um, you have chosen. Um, and you know you're the infrastructure guy for the Labor Party, but I guess you've you've it's infrastructure that you've been drawn to. What's there's there's a bit of a disconnect there. Yeah. Can you help us make it, make that leap? Look, I, I did I did economics at, at university, um, uh, so you know I'm an economist by training, and one of the things that uh, attracted me to to infrastructure is again experience. Hmm. Um, uh, the issue of uh, the the third runway at uh, Kingston Smith and building a second airport at Badgerish Creek was 
an issue in my first campaign in 1996. It took us a while to get there, uh, but uh, we did get there. Yeah. In terms of thirty years, the first plane will land thirty years after. Yeah. The campaign. So it's a, um, but uh, so my first speech when I when I got the uh, infrastructure ministry, on transport, um, my first speech in Parliament is largely about infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, if you're serious about transforming. Uh, the economy and society, then infrastructure is critical. I've had uh, opportunities to change portfolio uh, on a couple of occasions, and I've uh, I've chosen not to. Yeah. Um, I think also that there's a great deal of satisfaction um, in uh, driving on a road that you know you have played a role in fixing. I mean, we transformed the Pacific Highway. While, while I was the minister, you know, it had, John Howard's government put $1.3 billion in over 12 years. We put 7.6 in over six. That, um, that, that's, quite and, a, that's quite a new, th well, as in from, from the time effectively that you were in the portfolio, it's quite new for the Commonwealth to take that much of an interest in, um, in roads, trains, things like that. Is, is that. is that something that you're, that yeah, you're conscious and, of? And we, absolutely. Look, uh, the, the, the biggest figure is that in public transport, uh, we committed more in the time that I was infrastructure minister in that uh, six years than had been committed by all federal governments in the previous 107 years, um, from 1901 right through to 2007. And uh, that's a transformation. Uh, we did it by creating Infrastructure Australia. We did it by uh, changing the way that uh, federal uh, funding uh, was done for infrastructure projects. and. There were some even in, even in my party who were opposed to that. Some who said, "If you start funding public transport, where will it end? You know, you'll 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 dip your toe in the water, and you'll fall in and drown." Well, if you're serious about cities and urban congestion, um, public transport is the key. And so, you know, going to projects like uh, regional rail link in Victoria, the Redcliffe rail line, in uh, in uh, Brisbane to the north um, was first promised in 1895. And every federal election since Every, every election was, was up and had come, federal and state, uh, primarily state. We got it done and it's opened and it's fantastic. Gold Coast Light Rail, you know, was opposed by uh, the, uh, the coalition, state and federal, I'm happy to be there at the opening because it's a fantastic project. And the Lunga to Seaford extension in South Australia, the Perth CityLink project, which, which has one example of a transformative project. It has united the Northbridge sort of entertainment precinct with uh, the, uh, the CBD of Perth. You have a massive private sector investment has gone on uh, with uh, new buildings and infrastructure there, the entertainment precinct—it's changed the face of Perth. But so, how, how do you how do you um, how do you prioritise those from Canberra? How does the Perth a, a road in Perth um, get prioritised over or below or balanced or in some way over a train in in Brisbane or etc.? Well, that's why you need Infrastructure Australia to do uh, that assessment right. and to do it 
properly and uh, objectively, there are a range of projects that I think would never have got up without the Infrastructure Australia process um, because of the previous political um, frame that was put on investment decisions. Uh, perhaps the best example of that is the Majura Parkway uh, in the ACT, $144 million from each level of government, from the ACT government and federally. What that has done is essentially mean that all the heavy vehicles uh, don't have to go through uh, the middle of the middle of Canberra. It's, it's had a massive uh, BCR was uh, either above three or four, but substantial uh, positive benefit. Uh, but no votes in it. No one has said gone into a polling booth and said I'm going to vote Labor because they fixed the Majura Parkway. Can, can I just? That, that's a really interesting point. That that because that you know there aren't uh, who the votes are attributed to. Is a very it's this complex mix that we have in, in in Australia where the state and federal governments can both be responsible. Sometimes 50-50, sometimes 80-20. What? How sure. do we decide how much the state should be investing, how much the federal government should be investing? Sure. And, and well, I'm I'm a supporter of uh, a partnership investing of of 50-50 um, because I think unless you do that, uh, what you have is if if the states don't have buy-in, uh, what you have is uh, you know, at the end of a project, uh, you'll get uh, a whole lot of artwork built because it's someone else's money. <laughs> or and you'll also get, uh, as, as famously featured in one of the episodes of Utopia, um, you'll also uh, have no discipline. So well, it became obvious to me that one state in particular used to always overestimate what the cost was and then come to you and say, aha, we have now $150 million left over from this project and here's what we want to spend it on. Right. Um, you prepared to name and shame? And uh, no, I'll be polite because I might be negotiating with them again soon. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it wasn't a uh, wasn't a Labor or a, a coalition issue. I mean, the bureaucracy, I reckon, were... Uh, just did this as a matter of course. It sounds so like the that... most sophisticated in the country. If they're doing <laughs> yeah. That. Well, they 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 certainly uh, they certainly did. But so is that uh, the rule of thumb then, fifty fifty? Because it's not it's not it's uh, I don't think there is a right answer here. Yeah, is there, I, I is just that I you're... just think that should be the starting point. There may be an argument from time to time over things like yeah, uh, you know, the new airport. It's been done with an equity injection. Um, uh, and it's obviously a Commonwealth responsibility. Cross River Rail, um, our proposal there is 50-50 uh, in terms of uh, the uh, cash injection, but a PPP model uh, with essentially an availability payment model over 30 years, uh, whereby the Commonwealth will guarantee a, a relatively small, modest payment, uh, but over that period of time in recognition that the asset will be there uh, at producing outcomes for a long period of time. So I, I think we need to be yeah, innovative uh, in, uh, in finances, if it can work, uh, whilst not uh, having uh, a view uh, that uh, some uh, took in, the, uh, in, in the, the current government somehow that value capture was going to mean that you could do all these projects for free. Um, yeah, that's a nonsense, but sometimes 
uh, you can get uh, that private sector investment and the Commonwealth can play a role just in risk mitigation by providing some upfront payment. I think so on there's the 50-50 issue, but then there's also what the states are aiming at in terms of their bids to the federal government. So as you mentioned, when, when you were in government, there was a big focus on public transport and more since all other governments since federation combined. And then change of government, Tony Abbott had a view around only investing in roads from a yeah. federal perspective. It, it, uh, within the framework we've got, states find it quite hard to know and what what game they're playing, and that can be a problem. I, I think uh, uh, one of the things that's happened though in recent years is that we've, we've won that debate about uh, post Malcolm Turnbull, um, which is a good thing. That was really ideological, and I think a rather uh, e- extreme position that saw the private motor vehicle as embodying individualism and a train or a bus is embodying uh, collectivism. Uh, and uh, so it's uh, fortunately that's moved away. And now we have um, you know, some bipartisan commitments over things like Metronet uh, in Perth. Uh, you have a, uh, the coalition since Malcolm Turnbull's uh, took over as a prime minister, not ruling out uh, public transport projects, because what it did was it distorted uh, what happened in the cities. Um, there was money cut from Cross River Rail in uh, in Brisbane, Parramatta Epping Rail Link here in Sydney, Melbourne Metro, Perth Airport Link, Hobart Light Rail Study, uh, all of it, all of it gone. Uh, Tonsley Park uh, project in Adelaide, all of it removed, and then just put into roads. Um, and and that that's a wrong position. Transport networks need to work together, road and rail, uh, just as passenger and freight movement needs to work together as well. You need that integrated strategy. So uh, we'll come back to infrastructure in a minute, but you mentioned bipartisanship in Canberra. The other thing that's striking to outsiders around Canberra is this kind of Canberra bubble, that mm. everything happens in Canberra and there's such a focus during parliamentary sitting weeks on the healing Canberra. Um, how, how do federal politicians stay in contact with the real world when you've got this navel gazing, as it appears from the outside, in yeah. on the hill? I think getting out and about, um, but also by having um, getting about as in, out and about as individuals, but also by setting up appropriate structures. So, setting up Infrastructure Australia, setting up the major cities unit. Uh, getting the right advice, making sure that we engage, dare I say it, with organisations like IPA um, and with uh, the private sector. And I think I have uh, had a a long-standing record of having really constructive relationships with uh, the uh, the business-based organisations in in the sector. That doesn't mean we always agree, um, but it means that you have that dialogue and that contact. Uh, it is really easy, like um, you, you can get views reinforced mm. and and that can happen on, on either side of politics. Um, I think that if uh, the Abbott government had have uh, discussed issues more broadly, the idea of um, 
the Commonwealth not being involved in public transport. When, when Tony Abbott made that announcement, he made it in Melbourne on radio and said, the Commonwealth don't invest in, in public transport projects. This was at a time where the regional RALIC was nearing completion, um, the largest ever investment in a public transport project by the Commonwealth, one that had new stations at places like Tarnate and Windenvale, which is exactly the way that planning should happen. The stations went there before the people. At risk of opening Pandora's box, let's talk high-speed rail. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's the other rail line that gets promised around every federal election. You want to talk us through your current... Well, I'm a big supporter of it. I think it absolutely stacks up. We did the study, uh, a two-part study. Uh, ACOM did the work for us, uh, but it had engagement not just with national players but global players. It looked at international best practice. Uh, It found some principles uh, of whether high-speed rail stacks up or not. What, What are the circumstances? One of the things that it found was that the journey, if it's three hours or under, was the critical thing that people were looking for. It just so happens so that Sydney, Melbourne. Sydney, Melbourne and Sydney, Brisbane. Yeah. So in terms of if you look at the, the, the world's journeys, if you go any further than that, then people will tend to look just at, at air travel. But for that distance, and it's because if you, if you combine up the time, like if we now, wanted to go from this building to Melbourne CBD, it would take us more than three hours, door to door. Getting to the airport, booking through, going through security, waiting for the plane, getting on the plane, getting off the plane, getting a gate, doing all of that. And that, by and large, of that three hours, uh, most of it will be unproductive. Most of it. Some of it you might be able to read a document on the plane uh, for the hour, uh, now hour 35 minutes, hour 40 minutes. Um, Interestingly, Sydney and Melbourne used to be an hour 20. It goes out by five minutes every, it now takes longer than it used to uh, because of congestion. I had Wi-Fi on my plane yesterday though, so it was a bit more productive than it used to be. Well, I bet that, you only used it for unproductive things, though. I think I was texting you, actually. <laughs> that, that can also be a bit annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one bit of downtime that you got. But um, you look at the, the time on a train. You know, there's a reason why people catch uh, the uh, the Eurostar from London to Paris or go from, you know, Rome to Milan. Or so, so or, are you saying that that three hours is it still stacks up at three hours, or that's about absolutely. the that's about the threshold? That's that, it absolutely stacks up. If you got more than that, like if you wanted to go from Brisbane to Melbourne, you'd basically probably jump on the plane. Yeah. And and the other thing that stacked up, the, the other thing that really pushed it over the, the positive barrier is uh, regional economic development. A lot of talk about taking pressure off the big capital cities. If you're in Canberra to take uh, a, a city I'm familiar with, and you're under an hour from the CBD of Sydney. What that, that means is you can, I mean, I live in Marrickville. Uh, it uh, can take you, you know, 50 minutes to drive from Marrickville into the city. Uh, it's not very far. Um, if you're an hour from, all of a sudden you go to Sydney for dinner 
you go to Sydney to see a show or a band and get home uh, at night. So you're looking to build a, a train line from your electorate office to your ministerial <laughs> office. Is that the fair to say? This is, this is the plan. <laughs> but, but so if you have, the more places you stop, of course, the slower it gets. Yeah. So it, th those two things what undermine looked, each other. No, no. What it looked at having is uh, is two forms of transport is what makes it stack up. Your express trains, no stops, yeah. A to B, capital city to capital city, but then your your uh, regional uh, trains at the same time. So on a on a like an engineering transport base, I think most people see an attraction to high speed rail. Of course, the flip side of it is it was one hundred and fourteen billion dollars in twenty. It, it, it was it was uh, it was there were a lot of zeros involved. It was a lot of money. There and was. Then the question is, if you had a hundred and say it's one hundred and thirty or one hundred and forty now would you spend that on that with is that a higher priority than metros well, in cities well that's over a long period of time um and it's also in terms of uh you know you can get some of that back in terms of this is an area where value capture can operate uh to receive some uh substantial income streams all of a sudden uh some of the places like in 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 canberra um, Albury, uh, Shepparton, uh, Taree, Port Macquarie become transformed uh, by by that. So there's a real opportunity there. You also uh, the reason why it produced a positive return is the economic activity that would be generated by it. Um, and one of the things that I've said we would do, and and I've had legislation before the Parliament to create a high speed rail authority is we would also go to market. So we'd say to the players, and, and the costs, I, I don't believe, will have gone up. I think the costs have probably come down because what's happening is that every continent on the planet, except for this one, every inhabited continent, uh, they're not building it in Antarctica. Yes, it's us against but, the penguins. In but the, the, the Americas, uh, Asia certainly everywhere, Africa, uh, as well as, of course, in Europe, an extensive rollout, uh, have all are all building high-speed rail, and what's happening is that the technology is getting better, and it's becoming cheaper. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we've said that we would task the high-speed rail authority with doing is one, making sure preservation of the corridor. Uh, two, and Infrastructure Australia have, have you know backed that up. Uh, secondly, we would go to market and say, okay, who wants to partner with us in this? Now, here in the city of Sydney, the Japan Railway Company have had an office since the 1980s waiting for something to happen. Uh, but also, you know, TGV have visited here from, from France. The Spanish have visited here. The Italians have visited here. The Chinese. Um, you have, I think, uh, the potential for uh, a, a real opportunity and a real PPP uh, to uh, get a... Uh, a very good outcome, but uh, I I haven't um, hid from the fact uh, that I I think it will require a substantial government contribution as well. So can, I think can, the thing we'd all agree on though is the preservation of the corridor is is crucial if you're going to do it down the line because absolutely. otherwise the opportunity is lost because the tunneling's too expensive. Yep, and of the when the the study was done, I think uh, from memory. 
um, it was 82 kilometres of tunnels would be required. 67 kilometres of that tunnelling is here in Sydney. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a slightly different question. Um, you, um, we've seen quite often um, policies that are endorsed by, whether it, regardless of party, endorsed by that party when they're in office. Sometimes they get opposed after that when they're in opposition. Um, I won't name any in particular, but it's um, it's something that seems to happen seems to happen regularly. You you have um, managed to avoid that in a, in a, in a lot of cases. You tend to you uh, seem to stick to your to your convictions. What, what is it? What is it that you're? That, how come you're able to do that? And how can we encourage more a little bit more of that in um, in our politics political discourse today? Consistency. Um, you know, we did the uh, the work on the the second Sydney airport as well. We looked at other sites. Take this for an example. We looked at other sites, including Wilton, and essentially what we came back to was that that Badridge Creek was the best site for a, for a whole range of uh, of reasons, and uh, that shouldn't have been all that surprising because that had been what previous studies had found, but. We genuinely uh, looked at, at, at other options. There was a site up at Mangrove Mountain um, on the Central Coast that was worth looking at as well. It was a private sector proposal that came to us. We looked at that. We looked at Wilton. We looked at uh, other options. Um, you know, could you do something with Richmond uh, to expand it? Um, and we came back to, to Badgeries. We had discussions uh, with uh, coalition members, um, including uh, Joe Hockey, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, Scott Morrison. Um, all of them were basically supportive um, of, uh, of the proposal. Uh, we couldn't get, though, an agreement uh, with, uh, for Tony Abbott to not oppose it. And what would have happened would have been, it would have been uh, put forward, Abbott would have opposed it, some in the Labor Party would have opposed it, and it would have been gone, that opportunity. Mm. Uh, so hence, uh, it wasn't progressed any further than all of the work being done. Um, but what that meant was that after the 2013 election, um, uh, so I talked to Bill Shorten and told him that I'd had discussions uh, because he wasn't in the cabinet uh, at the time um, that uh, that it was progressed under under Julie Gillard uh, as uh, as Prime Minister um, and uh, ensured that um, you know Joe Hockey was the, the key person um, in having discussions. Uh, that it needed to be announced and progressed pretty quickly early in the term. And, uh, you know, I supported it and and it's happening. Sometimes projects need bipartisanship. So it doesn't need a government decision. It needs a government and an opposition decision. What about what about policies? Well, in terms of in terms of policies, the same. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, is dear to, to IPA is the issue of road pricing. Exactly. Now, I've agreed. Uh, if the election happens to go your way, is that is that going to be a priority? 
Well, it, it will be something that, that will progress in terms of looking at it. It won't be the, the first thing that we do, but uh, what should happen is a bipartisan look at this issue. And uh, you know, it needs to be addressed. Even simple things that haven't been able to be progressed like um, electric vehicles. Currently, if you're driving a 1977 Commodore, you're paying fuel tax. If you're driving a uh, 2018 Tesla, you're not paying anything and you're getting a discount on your registration. Yeah, and you're not levitating, so you're using that's, the road the same as everyone that's, else. That's not equity. And uh, how something like that couldn't be progressed is, uh, is beyond me. Um, there's a whole lot of issues that that should have been dealt with. Um, you know, there's an issue of uh, freight at at Sydney Airport with uh, Qantas and Virgin both wanting to use larger aircraft, uh, but which are more efficient. There'll be less of them, uh, and they'll be quieter because they're newer aircraft. And the government hasn't had its act together to actually fix up the regulations to allow that to happen. Um, I often feel like in recent years that uh, I'm sort of a, a minister in exile uh, <laughs> where, where, where um, you know, business is sort of coming through my door saying, can you try and fix this for, for me? Um, and sometimes I have been able to. It, it must be said, fix issues uh, with, uh, with the government. But, any, any you want to name? Uh, no, no, I won't <laughs> go into it. But the, the, uh, that's what happens in part when you have a revolving door with different minister, cabinet ministers, junior ministers, assistant ministers. I've shadowed at least 13 people. So how, uh, in the in, last few years. In government and in opposition, nearly a decade you've been in the infrastructure portfolio? Yes, yeah, since, two, well, longer, since December 2007. One of the things that I did um, as, a, uh, as a, a, a minister in the different areas, uh, for example, uh, I created the Australian Council of Local Government. I brought in people uh, who uh, were not just mayors, but, you know, the, the peak organisations, including the, the managers, etc. Uh, to a body to get that input. On the Urban Policy Forum, we produced a national urban policy. I created a, an urban policy forum that met regularly that included organisations like the Australian Architects, the Property Council, uh, different uh, business leaders, as well as uh, you know, some of the key um, mayors, uh, the, the Planning Institute of Australia, getting those people around a, a, a room uh, I made sure in terms of uh, the Infrastructure Australia board, um, we had, uh, you know, from this organisation, Mark Birrell appointed, so that what that did was bring in the engagement of IPA and its affiliates into the organisation. And you had Sir Rod Eddington, and, who's now our, our chair-elect. Yes, yeah, Sir Rod okay. Eddington, you know, an amazing chair of uh, of Infrastructure Australia. So do you, uh, do you consider Infrastructure Australia to be your legacy from your, your first ministerial role in this portfolio? I think the fact that it, it's it's been maintained, it was opposed, bear in mind, when we put it up before the parliament, it, this was not a bipartisan proposition. Um, and uh, it, it, it was a great success, I think. Um, it needs to be, I think, its, its significance 
uh, isn't the same as what it was, uh, but that can happen again, I think, uh, with, uh, with, with the right approach. Um, I, I think that was a very important legacy. Uh, one, I, I think the change in terms of uh, urban policy, the re-engagement with cities is another um, thing that, that now looks a bit ho-hum, but it was a, a very significant transformation and change that again has subsequently become permanent. Uh, the uh, support for public transport investment uh, has become permanent. Uh, the first uh, aviation white paper uh, so that we had a 30-year plan. Uh, you look at where aviation is today in uh, 2019, go back and have a look at where it was in 2007. I'm interested, all the things you've mentioned as legacies are policy things, they're not project things. Yeah, but pro the, the projects I'm concerned about um, you know, are, are there as well. But it's not a bad thing, by the no, way. I don't I, think I, I compliment it's not it. I, I, it's just an interesting. Highway, because it's not about, look, you know, you can do a project one-off, but, and that's important. The Pacific Highway has saved lives. Um, we rebuilt one third of the interstate rail freight network, you know, as part of the economic stimulus plan. A massive uh, change and transformation in, in efficiency. Um, some of the little projects, you know, fixing up, uh, we had five and a half thousand community infrastructure projects as part of the economic stimulus. Uh, but big projects, Gold Coast Stadium, or the little projects uh, fixing up the local oval so kids get, you know, my um, uh, local field at Mackey Park in Marrickville uh, that used to be shut down for five months of the year uh, when, uh, when the soccer season and it couldn't be used in summer because they had to regenerate. It, 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 now they're able to play cricket and all of that. Those little things bring you a great deal of, of satisfaction and they're right around the country. So if you get a shot then, um, in, there's a federal election in May, if you're successful and prevail and you're in the infrastructure portfolio, what do you want to be your legacy from the next run at? Um, well, I think high-speed rail is one of the, the things because I think that's transformative. That's a project, but it's more than just a project. Delivering high-speed rail or putting oh, the foundation? Look, the truth it? is it won't, it won't be built. Uh, delivering a structure that makes it bipartisan into the future. Hmm. So advancing the corridor preservation, um, I would like us to be advanced in terms of uh, how it's going to be built and potential partners for there to be a, a, a clear pathway. Um, we've got the study, so we've got the, the basics are there. Um, I think uh, in, in shipping, I think is as critical. Look, the you know we did good shipping reform. Shipping reform was too hard. We changed the Navigation Act 1912, which had in it uh, that uh, literally that you could shoot a lunatic was actually in the act uh, without fear of prosecution uh, because it was taken from the Westminster Act from the 19th century where people would go crazy on board and a ship captain might have to I think it's bizarre that you'd name the mode someone. of <laughs> you can shoot them seems like a really odd yeah it was, specific. it was in there you were free from prosecution now you're telling me for, for taking <laughs> for taking action and there were all sorts of really strange things in there that had just been put in the two hard basket for 100 years now we consulted really broadly 
uh, to try and revitalise Australian shipping. And uh, the truth is the coalition uh, said before it came into to being in 2012, uh, the coalition immediately said they'd get rid of it. So you didn't have the investment because you didn't have the policy certainty there, a bit like energy policy now. Uh, you need policy certainty for that investment. Um, we had a policy now, uh, a clear policy of creating a strategic fleet. Um, the fact is that uh, Australia's down to 14 Australian flag vessels. Switzerland has more. Um, we need to, doesn't have any oceans, obviously, either. <laughs> um, we need to do uh, much better as a, an island uh, nation, an island continent. Um, so that's one of the, the areas that I'd be looking to make a, a legacy on. What about for IA? For IA, I want to see it at, at the centre of the debate. Should uh, they have money? More than it, so it is now. No, but I think that they should have, uh, they shouldn't be a funding body because once you do that, you'll distort their actions. Okay. What, what they should do though, is have circumstances whereby uh, they have power over decision making. So not because they've got the they've got the, the infrastructure priority list now. Yeah, that, that's that's why we have government to make decisions. Um, part of what we have to do is to stop the distortion that's there in terms of a politicisation. Should IA be driving policy in some way? Or IA is that... should be driving policy, and there are examples whereby it has, including Absolutely. in recent years. Absolutely. I think the preservation of the corridor uh, policy was, was some of the best work uh, that it's done. Uh, I think it should be looking at uh, issues including financing options, uh, which it's provided for. We're, we're, we've said very clearly we'll get rid of um, the uh, the infrastructure financing unit, whatever it's called these days, but that's the job of IA. We'll do, give, do you see any any we'll um, give that money to IA and to the major cities unit? Do you see any similarity between when the national competition policy paid uh, paid states on the condition that certain reforms were implemented? Do you see any similar similar well, possibilities a, for IA? Oh, look, there's a potential for doing that. And there's a potential for making sure, for example, one of the things that we'll look at in government is a way that uh, you ensure that priority projects get funding before uh, projects on determined on the basis of politics. Now, there are a range of ways that you can do that. We did it just out of political will. Uh, so we funded every single uh, priority project, but Goodwood to Torrens, you know, managed motorways programs, Hunter Expressway um, projects that, you know, there weren't, there was no political imperative to do so, we did it. And the cabinet understood because Infrastructure Australia was, uh, you know, our creation and because you had serious people. I mean, Sir Rod Ennington uh, is uh, a, a, a remarkable Australian and uh, he's someone who, who has weight um, and, you know, that makes a difference uh, when you have uh, that drive from the top. Mm. Um, I'm really conscious of your time, being really generous with your time. I've got one final question. What's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why? <laughs> um, probably, probably uh, rail. Um, just because I think that there's something about getting on a train, whether you're a millionaire or a pensioner, you get the same seat. 
Unless you're in high speed rail and get a first class one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not much better the it's experience. Not, that's the true. truth. That just way. shows you got more money than you uh, than it's you true. need. All right. Thank you ever so much for your time. We really appreciate it. My Thanks pleasure. for being on. So that was Albo, the Shadow Minister for Transport and Infrastructure. A great discussion, I thought, and he certainly got some fascinating insights on infrastructure policy and, and politics more broadly as well. I couldn't agree more. And to be honest, I, I, I did enjoy the discussion, but separate from any thoughts on politics or policy, I'm always impressed uh, when speaking with Albo that there's clearly no other version of him behind closed doors. He's the same guy in public as he is in private. I think we saw that authenticity and he spoke a lot about his background and what politicised him and um, why he tackles policy issues the way he does. I think it's a, that authenticity came through today. Very, very, uh, came through loud and clear. So it was great to have him here. Um, on, a, on a slightly different note though, we've just had an election in New South Wales and uh, Adrian, I'd certainly be interested to know your thoughts on what the implications are of that election for infrastructure investment in the state. Both the opposition and the government ran fairly strongly on an infrastructure platform. A lot of the discussion around the election in the campaign was around infrastructure. Um, at Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, we put together a, a blue book and a red book, and um, the blue book was the, the one that was used as a, a Liberal government um, were returned. So that tells the sector about what's happened. You can get the video on, um, on our social media channels. Can we get a, a little summary of that? What were the key takeaways? Um, so I think it was a, infrastructure was clearly a deciding issue in the election. The striking thing for me is actually looking at New South Wales and Victoria um, and looking at the two most recent elections. They've both been run on platforms of a substantial infrastructure spend. And I think that that should be instructive for um, both sides at the, the federal level around infrastructure is a key issue in the electorate and governments that have a good story to tell on infrastructure um, are, are finding electoral success. Interesting, interesting. Well, it's it's certainly a great time to be involved in the sector and um, it's good to see that infrastructure continues to be a focus for governments of all stripes, um, pleasing for us, those of us that work in it and certainly for those of us that, that use it as well. Absolutely. For our listeners, we hope you'll share this podcast with your colleagues and anyone you think might be interested. Uh, we've had a pretty positive response to the podcast so far, but we're always keen to um, get your feedback and, uh, and suggestions for how we can improve it. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you to uh, the Honourable Anthony Albanese for joining us today. Thank you, Adrian, for hosting with me and we'll be back again soon. So please make sure to subscribe so that you're notified when there's a new episode. Thanks, Ilya. Thanks, Adrian. Inside Infrastructure is an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast sponsored by PwC Australia.